Can you think of a singer who has performed over 60 different operatic roles and sung on the Met stage almost a thousand times over the past five decades? I'm Naomi Baratera, and today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, an interview with that singer, James Morris. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Since his Metropolitan Opera debut in 1971, James Morris has gone on to create renowned portrayals and share the stage with virtually every great singer of the past five decades. Here is the legendary bass baritone in conversation with the Guild's Executive Director of Program Development, Paul Gruber, sharing stories from across his career. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Paul Gruber. Welcome here to Musical Chairs. And welcome James Morris, uh, who has given me permission to let you know that he is under the weather. <laughs> Typical singer, but, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and as is his entire family. So there'll be no handshaking, no hugging, no kissing. I, um, I recognize a few people that I want to give a hug to. But. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, but we're lucky enough to have some videos. So he can lip sync if he wants to. <laughs> so to start with, um, I want to talk about the phenomenal career, really historic career you've had at the Med. And you may not be aware very often singers are not aware of the statistics of exactly what it is they've achieved, not necessarily in, in, in quality, but in quantity. <laughs> we'll get to the quality later. But um, to date, you may be aware of this, it's basically one of the longest careers in Met history. That I didn't know, okay. <laughs> uh, so to date, you have sung 988 Met performances of 60 roles um, of 45 nearly consecutive seasons. You missed one season. I did? Yeah, you really did. Oh, <laughs> I was shooting for 50 in a row. <laughs> um, well, nobody would know if you, if you didn't. Um, starting in 1971, at the end of this season, assuming that you go on for everything that you were slated to go on for, mm -hmm. and don't go, I don't know if you're covering for any roles, um, maybe there might be some people you want to talk into being out one night. <laughs> at the end of this season, you'll be at 997 performances. Hmm. So um, either you three need to get to over the hump. Do right? three, <laughs> either you need to do three more that you're not slated for, that you're not that you're covering, or you have to make sure you're around next season. <laughs> and just to put that in perspective. There's Charles Anthony, who basically broke all the records that the Met has, both in terms 
of number of performances, something like 4,500. Um, but also yeah. years, he's one. He may be the only one who's who broke 50 years mm -hmm. at the Met. There are only two people who have done more than you have besides Charlie, um, and they're both still singing. One of them is Placido, mm -hmm. um, with not necessarily the number of performances, it's fewer performances, but he started in 1968 and you started in 1971. Mm -hmm. And the other is Paul Plischke, who has done about the same number of seasons. He's missed more than you have. Mm -hmm. He started before you, but missed more than you have seasons. But is up to 1,647 performances. Jeez. <laughs> I don't so. think I'm going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any sense of, you know, when I look at that and I look at the history and I look at the people you have sung with mm. um, at the Met, do you have any sense of the, the span of that kind of career, or is that hard to do from your perspective? It, it's, it's hard, I mean, because you really didn't appreciate things so much in the beginning. Now I look back oh, and I think, oh, I wish I'd appreciated that more. You know? I'd, I'd like to go everywhere where I sang and do it one more time you know, in those places. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, no, not, not so much. I mean, when I mean, you started, you were singing with at least two people who made their debuts in the 40s, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Tucker and Robert Merrill. Yeah. No, I, we were talking earlier. Um, I feel so fortunate that I actually came along when I did, uh, both uh, as far as colleagues, singers, and productions uh, were mm -hmm. concerned. And um, I, I feel like I was really lucky to get, to get in on the end of that era. So, yeah, yeah I, I, miss, I miss some of those guys. Yeah. Um, my in-laws, uh, af after they died, my wife, uh, Susan, uh, was, she was going through all their things, and there are all these old, old opera newses and programs, and I, and I looked down the casts, and it's so amazing. Like, every name in that cast was well-known, you know, and um, brought back a lot of memories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's go back to, to childhood and, and how you got started. Uh, you grew up in Maryland, a <laughs> suburb of Baltimore, and a, lot, a number of these photos were provided to us by Jim. Um, uh, here you are with your parents and sister. Mm -hmm. um, I, re I remember that. It was New Year's Eve. Um, to, uh, what's the name of the top of the rock? The, uh, the oh, uh, the Rainbow Room. Ra Rainbow Room. Guy Lombardo. <laughs> and I remember I was dancing with my mother on the floor, and when it was finished, I just walked right off. <laughs> and and she left was, her there. No, no, you're supposed to, you know, do this. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Your That's parents, uh, tell us about your parents, because I know nothing about your parents. What? Oh, okay. Um, my dad uh, worked for a, a dairy. He was vice president of a dairy company in Baltimore, Coons Creamery. Uh, before that, um, he was a jock in school. He was All-American football and lacrosse. And um, I did not follow in his footsteps. <laughs> and, um, but he gave, me, <clears throat> he gave me an incredible piece of advice. And, you know, most, most fathers, when they're jocks like that, they want their son to follow in their footsteps. And uh, I was at University of Maryland. And um, 
I was asked to be in uh, uh, the choir, and I couldn't do it and still do uh, lacrosse, which I was also going to do. And my dad said, <clears throat> look, look at me. I'm a broken-down athlete. Sports are great for the four years you're in school, but uh, <clears throat> you have something that nobody's going to be able to take away from you. And there aren't many uh, parents that would do that. So that, I feel very lucky that way. And um, my mom was a homemaker, and uh, they we're talking back in the 50s here. So, And um, it, it was a small family, just uh, myself and my sister. And, uh, and my older sister, who actually lived with our grandmother, but she was the one who was instrumental and introduced me to Rosa Poncel. And because it's complicated, but there's kind of a connection there. And uh, Rosa would talk about this connection, uh, and she'd be explaining it to somebody in Italian. And I didn't know that much of it, much Italian, but I knew enough to know that she wasn't getting it right. <laughs> but <laughs> um, there were these two brothers in Baltimore, one, uh, and they were the son of the mayor of Baltimore. And Rosa was married to one, and my mother was married to the other. And they both divorced. Uh, Rosa divorced her husband, and my mother uh, divorced her first husband and married my dad. So in some sort of like six points of separation or whatever, there's some sort of thing there. And um, my oldest sister, uh, who was um, from my mother's first marriage, um, she had that connection with Rosa. So mm -hmm. she called Rosa and said, uh, we'd like you to listen to him just to see if there's anything worth pursuing. Because uh, when I had said something to my parents about wanting to go into opera, they were like, mm, you know, Lawyer, doctor, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Theater, uh, you know. So, um, so when I sang for Rosa, and uh, she said, no, he, he should pursue this. How so. did it start for you, though, in terms of when you were a kid, were you listening to opera? Did oh, you no. Care? Yeah, I didn't oh, no. So. When, when it came on the radio, I turned it off. My, my mom liked it. Uh, she'd lips, listen to the Saturday yeah. broadcast. And, uh, but to me, it was, sounded like a lot of screaming, and, you know. And... Um, but yeah, I was in junior high school, my last year in junior high. They call it middle school now. And um, in the chorus, and we were doing a Christmas pageant, and I was one of the three kings. Uh, the choir mistress came around and said, you, 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 three kings. And um, so we each had to sing a verse from We Three Kings, right? And uh, I was the last one. Murr is mine. It's murr. And um, <coughs> so I sang, and it was loud. It was not much more than that, but it was loud. And there was somebody in the front row with these old reel-to-reel, -reel, you know, machines. And the lights lit up and the needles went like that, you know. And everybody said, geez, you should learn what to do with that. So it was uh, the next year, my first year in high school, there was somebody that lived just down the street from the high school, private teacher. And uh, I started working with him. And, I, you know, I always wanted to do Broadway. You know, I thought opera, oh, no, no way. And um, when I started with him, we took the aria that Jerry Hines always calls the base national anthem, Il Accelato Spirito, from Simone Bocanegra, base national anthem. And, um, and he gave me that to sing, and he translated it for me and, you know, played it. And I thought, oh, you know, oh, it actually means something, okay? It's like a place, it's music. Oh, okay, fine. And then I, I grew to love it. And um, 
just things snowballed after that. Did you start listening to recordings? Were there any artists? I, there was one after, in particular. After that, after that. I had no. read that you uh, really idolized uh, Sieppi. Oh, yeah. Oh, Sieppi. No, he, he came along later. I didn't, I didn't know about him in the beginning. Yeah. But, yeah, no, he, he was my idol. And, uh, and I got to work with him, which was... So I, I feel that this is what I was saying about I feel so fortunate coming along when I did. Yeah. Work okay. with people like... Um, like Tucker and, and Merrill and Lucine and, um, you know, all, the, all these fabulous, fabulous people. And uh, Corena Siepi, uh, Corelli, uh, he was fantastic, so. Yeah, no, that's a lot of great memories. Yeah. Let's go back to Rosa Poncel because she really was, we were talking about this earlier. Um, and Poncel got you started at the Baltimore Opera, right? Right, Which, yeah. was that your first professional experience? Yeah, it was, it was. Um, the first, <laughs> uh, I could have debuted earlier. They asked me to do uh, the Mandarin in uh, Turandot. And I turned it down because I wanted to do Marriage of Figaro at University of Maryland because that's where I was you know, studying. And uh, it turned out I got mononucleosis and I missed a lot of the rehearsals. And they cut Bartolo's aria in the Figaro. And so without that, you know, the part wasn't much. And uh, the Turandot was Birgit Nielsen. <laughs> and uh, one of the biggest regrets I have in my life is that I never got to work with her. Uh, yeah. I got to meet her, and uh, we were sitting next to each other one time at a Tucker thing, at the makeup table getting made up, and she knew who I was, and I thought, oh my God, she knows who I am. Um, my wife sang with her in uh, San Francisco, uh, Valkyra. Uh, my wife was one of the Hoya Toho girls, and um, Birgit was doing the Brunhilde. But um, they didn't realize really what they had there either, these, these girls, because as soon as they finished their bit on stage, they went downstairs and had pizza. So, <coughs> but anyway. And you were really young when you started the Met. Basically, Baltimore led to the Met. Mm -hmm. You were 23. 23, yeah. Um, at your debut. And we yeah. should, we've mentioned this name before. But your debut was in Aida, and we mm -hmm. have your Aida here, Lucina Mara, um, who was your debut. Your Aida yeah. in 1971. Yeah. But I also heard, read just today a story, a sad story, that your dad died right before your Met debut. Is that true? Um, no, actually, he, he saw my debut, but, oh, good. but he died the, the next year. Yeah. And, um, I was still doing the King. You know, the sad thing is this, uh, I was still doing the King the next year. And um, he had a heart attack. Now this guy, he, he was the healthiest person in the world. Like I said, in, the, in school he was a jock and everything. He had never been sick a day in his life, had never had a cold, didn't know what a headache was. He'd say to me, what, what's a headache feel like? Jeez. <laughs> and, um, but um, when he was 63, he had uh, a mild heart attack and uh, went into the hospital for it. And about a week later, he came out and right away had another heart attack, and that's when he died. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> while he was in the hospital, uh, he was listening to the broadcast of Aida, and he got everybody you know, around to listen, you know, Sunday. And I canceled the second act. <laughs> I, I wasn't in good shape and I got through the first act and then I said no I got to cancel the second act and um, so that was the last thing you heard me say. Oh. But, 
but he did. He got to see me there. He didn't get to see me do, you know, any of the big roles. But well, you, <coughs> you started the way lots of people start, doing very small roles, um, and this is around the period when you first came to the Met. Um, oh, you got and, that one. Yep. <laughs> I, I sent that. I sent that to my son. Uh, he's at Susquehanna University because when he was home at Christmas, we were talking about handlebar mustaches. And he didn't know what, and I tried to describe it to him. And then when we were looking for pictures, I found that. So I sent it to him, texted it to him, and he wrote back, ew. <laughs> <laughs> but you were doing roles like the Marquis de Calatrava and the friar in Don Carlo and the soldier in Zalame. And Beth just sent me this today. This is a wonderful shot of oh, Peter Grimes. Great. You were Swallow. Lucene was Ellen. Doing that, yeah. A lot of wonderful people there on stage with you. Um, you were doing three to four performances a week, mm. and I found a couple of times when you were doing the Saturday matinee and evening. Mm -hmm. um, well, those roles you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but also yeah. in your twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a big you're, difference. You're too. more able to do that too. Right. Um, but within a year, you went on to larger roles like the Commendatory, Ferrando. Um, during that time, where did you think it was going? Were you very, were you patiently waiting for, for additional assignments? Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't really know. I mean, I didn't have these goals in mind, like, oh, I want to do that role or that role. You yeah. Know? And um, that came later. <laughs> but at that time, I was just going with the flow, you know. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, the uh, the big turnaround was. Uh, First Don Giovanni at the Met, and it was kind of like a Cinderella story. And um, I had done uh, Commendatore three or four seasons, and along with roles like Monterone and things like that, and uh, the roles that I said, you know, you plant your feet and crank out a big sound. And I was dying to sing piano. I wanted to sing something soft, you know, and, and create a character. So. Um, the last time they came to me to do Commendatore, uh, there were two runs of it. The first run was a French baritone, Roger Soyer, and then Cheryl. Uh, did it. No, the first run was Cheryl, and the second run was, was Soyer. And so they asked me uh, if I would you know, do the Commendatore again. And I said, well, uh, I'll do it on one condition if I can be the cover for the Dawn. And, um, and in those days, the American covers, they, they didn't really go on. If, if somebody canceled far enough in advance, they'd get somebody from Europe. You know, they, they always wanted a name. And um, it's kind of come back to that, too. <laughs> but, and um, so I said, yeah, sure, okay. They didn't expect anything. So first run, Cheryl did them all. It was a commendatory. And something had told me, some, there was a little bird in my head, I don't know, that I better really get this thing prepared. And there was a coach at the Med, Walter Tausi, mm -hmm. who um, he was a real pain in the behind. But if you learned to roll with him, you knew it for life. Every little dotted 30-second note, and two, 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 you know. But it, it sticks. You know, when, when somebody's just drilling something into you like that, it sticks. And um, so I kept asking for more and more coachings. And he said, well, you, you know it. You, you, you don't need it. You know it. I said, no, I know it well enough to stand here by the piano, but I don't know it well enough to go running all around the stage, you know, the recitatives and everything. So I kept insisting on more and more. And um, sure enough, 
uh, Soyer, he did his first performance, and then he went home to France. <laughs> and I had a one day's notice. I was doing the Marquis in uh, La Forza. And the day of my first Don Giovanni ever uh, at the Met or anywhere, uh, that morning there was a stage orchestra rehearsal of La Forza. And I was doing Marquis, and they would not let me out of it. And I was like 26 or something. And uh, I said, what? You know, it's the first Don Giovanni. No, no, you got to do this rehearsal. I, <laughs> go on. So uh, another really, really wonderful artist who I've admired so much, Bonaldo Giotti, he was doing the uh, Padre Guadiano. And he thought, this, Jimmy, this is ridiculous. They make you come in and do this, you know. And so that night when I went into my dressing room, he had written across my mirror in soap, in bocca lupo caro mio, and all of a sudden, oh. You know. But uh, yeah, that, that was the first thing that kind of turned it around. We, we had a number of turning points. Another turning point that, that I remember, um, this seemed to me the time when I thought the world was really catching on to you, was the Ipuritani. Um, in 1976. I, I, I was so lucky. I mean, when they <clears throat> told me I was going to be in this cast, uh, Joan Sutherland, Luciano, Cheryl Milnes, and myself, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a baby. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, it was one of the biggest thrills of my life, really. It was, yeah. it was so much fun. You had, a, you had a number of experiences with Sutherland and Bonning, and they were, uh, I thought they were crazy about you, and gave you lots of lots of opportunities, both at the Met and elsewhere. Yeah, no, they 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 were great. Uh, we worked together a lot, and um, I went to their house in uh, Les Avants, in Switzerland, mm -hmm. and uh, their house in Sydney, uh, inside the city, and then their beach house outside the city, and uh, it, it they were we were very close. And um, it was a great period in my life. You want to tell the shrimp story? Do you remember the shrimp story? <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> it, was, it was after Ipuritani. It was a matinee. And I was living up in uh, Inwood at the time, 215th Street. And uh, I invited the whole cast over for, you know, and knocked me over with a feather. They all came. And... Uh, including Luciano's wife, uh, Adwa. And um, my oldest daughter had just been born. She was still in the crib. So anyway, they, they came up, and um, uh, Adwa spent the entire night in the nursery holding my daughter. I mean, that's, that's what she was, Earth Mother. You know. And um, so anyway, uh, my wife, is my first wife, had prepared these shrimp, boiled shrimp, but she decided to leave them in their jackets so everybody wouldn't eat too many because <laughs> they have to peel them, you know. And um, so they all came in, and Joan's there, and first thing she did, she sees this bowl of shrimp. She sits down on the sofa and takes off her shoes, you know, sees the shrimp. Oh, my dear, the men aren't going to go for this, and puts it on her lap and went and peeled every damn one of them. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, that was... Uh, like I say, you know, you don't appreciate these things when, they, when they're happening. And uh, 30, 40 years later, then, then you appreciate it. The, the Puritani predated Live from the Met, but you did 10 years later 
on, I don't know if you remember, Pavarotti Plus. There, were, there was a series that Luciano did of, of concerts in New York with all-star casts. Um, and you sang the Puritani duets, Act Two duets, with Alan Titus. Mm -hmm. And we've taken a selection from that. It's a series of duets, one after the other, in Act Two. And that's what we're going to see right now. <laughs> I've never seen that. No. He sounded like more of a bass than I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that was Emerson Buckley conducting, I failed to say. Yeah, I, I, Emerson Buckley. Talk about great people back in the day, you know, the cast, the cast lists and everything. But Emerson, real old school conductor, and he knew so much. Um, you know, and Anton Coppola, who's celebrating his 100th yeah. birthday now. Um, <clears throat> oh, he was on um, Mozart in the Jungle. I don't know if anybody watches oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coppola was on that. Um, but Emerson, uh, he was so funny. He had this kind of off-color humor sometimes. But uh, like he referred to uh, Unbalo in Mascara as the veiled testicle. But anyway, <laughs> um, but he he knew everything that was going on on the stage, where everybody was, and everything. And I remember one, one performance, somebody was on the wrong side of the stage, and he went to give him the cue, and he went, <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, he was an incredible guy. So the next turning point, at least this is my interpretation, was Billy Budd. Mm -hmm. um, Before we get into that, I, I got to say, um, when I first went to the Met, my first year at the Met, I was in the company box al almost every night. And uh, everybody said, oh, that's, that's going to wear off. That's going to change. And eventually it did. But <clears throat> one thing that I never missed a performance of was La Pericole. And Terry was doing the La Pericole. So fantastic. I, I never missed a performance. And I remember uh, 
on tour, Cyril Richard was playing the Viceroy. And uh, <clears throat> Cyril was known for his ad-libbing, like, you know, the dialogue just didn't stick. And he was making things up and everybody on stage was going, what's he going to say now? Oh, God. <laughs> but uh, one night the donkey that they used in the show didn't show up. Uh, we, were in, we were in Cleveland. And um, so they had gotten the nights mixed up or something, and so there was no donkey. And so he's saying, oh, what are we going to do? What are we gonna? And I said, well, just say he drank out of Lake Erie and died. But I said, no, no, I can't say that. But that man, geez, he was in his 70s, and he's out there doing high kicks with, with the girl from the New York City Ballet. I mean, unbelievable. And I thought, boy, that's what a life in the theater does for you. It really keeps you, you know. Yeah. Opera, not so much. But, uh, <laughs> but in the theater, yeah. So, I'm sorry, I just want to put that No, <laughs> I didn't notice you come in. And for those of you who are mystified by who Terry is, this is Teresa Strada. <laughs> Billy Butt. <laughs> um, this was a landmark production um, that still exists, that still gets done every once in a while. It seems to me one of those irreplaceable ones. Um, I hope it's irreplaceable. I hope so, too. <laughs> and not only did you find a role that you then really took over and it owned, um, but you also got to do it with John Dexter, directed by John mm -hmm. Dexter, and got to do it with Peter Pears, mm -hmm. um, who had created the role mm -hmm. um, of Captain Veer. Another legend, I'm, I'm telling you. Yeah. Um, when that came about, um, John Dexter had been directing Equus on Broadway. And like I said, I'd always wanted to do Broadway. You know? And I got word through my agent that John Dexter wanted to uh, talk with me about a possible future collaboration. And I thought, ta-da, Broadway, here we go. You know? So I went into his office, I sat down, and he presented me with Billy Budd. And I hope he didn't see, but inside I went <laughs> like that. And I didn't know Billy Budd or anything, but he explained it to me and everything. I said, yeah, okay, yeah, it's fine. So um, a while later when I was learning it, I was in Australia doing Don Giovanni and, uh, with Joan and, and Ricky. And so I started working on it. And the coach there, I never felt so stupid in my life. She had to go through the score and go one, two, three, four. To me, it was like so many fly specks on the paper. I mean, it, it's very, Britain is, can be very difficult mm -hmm. to decipher the rhythms and everything. I thought, oh my God. And so I'm working on this and working on it. And I didn't like it at first. And I said, I'm never going to do another Benjamin Britten opera. I hate it. I hate it. Oh, you know, it's too hard. And so then when we came into the first day of rehearsals, uh, Dexter marched us all out into the auditorium, sat us down opened the curtain, showed us the set, and showed us everything this set did. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you saw it. But that set was like an accordion. It starts out with one deck, and then during the course of the show, you see more and more and more decks. And at one point during the big battle scene, there's five decks up there. And so it would open and close depending on whatever scene you were doing. And uh, for Billy's last aria when he's down in the hold in the dungeon of the ship, the whole thing would rise up, you know, and he came up from the bottom, and you could see the outline of the hull of the ship up here. 
So it really looked like, you know, he was really down in the hold of the ship. And um, so he's showing us all this stuff and like, I don't know how many cannons, eight cannons or whatever, firing off. And I said, oh, I'm so glad I'm in this, you know. <laughs> and then because of the production, I fell in love with the music. Mm -hmm. and, and to this day, it's, it's one of my favorite operas, musically, too. And, um, but to be able to do it with Peter Pears and, uh, and Dexter uh, directing, and uh, it, was, it was a real thrill. It really was. was he a different kind of director from what you were used to? Um, <clears throat> he, uh, I didn't do any uh, of the classical things with him, but the, uh, the more modern pieces, yeah. like this and... Uh, Dialogues of the Carmelites, which I didn't do with him, but uh, you know the the more modern pieces. I mean, he was he was incredible with those, and um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I did much with him uh, besides the. I, I Billy think you Bud. probably later did some of his Verdi productions, but yeah, not, probably revivals. But not yeah, revivals. But not, not with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, he was fun. He was fun to work with. Yeah, um, and we have luckily it was it wasn't telecast immediately. Took a while, but eventually Billy Bud was telecast uh, with you. Uh, Dwayne Cross Croft was the Billy Bud. Uh, Stuart Bedford uh, conducted. This is from the March 11, 1997 telecast. And this is uh, your monologue, A Handsome Indeed. Mm -hmm. Nothing had been. Oh, you cannot escape. 
Love being mean. <laughs> That's about as mean as you get. That's about it. You know, yeah. personification of evil. Later, when you did Iago, did you think about this? No. Because the, this is because <laughs> this is it just occurred to me while I was watching at this time. This is the credo. Uh -huh. This is the equivalent. Of yeah, Iago's right. Credo. It's it's Claggart's credo, right? Yeah. That's what what he believes, and he's he's telling, you know, what what is in his heart and his yeah. right. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, that, that was fun, Otello. Mm. Never thought I would do that. I thought that was strictly baritone role, but uh, later in life, I, the top came a little bit better. And um, there was one note in, in that that I just I couldn't do. Beva! Beva come is like an A natural or something. And uh, I thought, well, damn it, I'm not going to give up a whole role for one eighth note. <laughs> of course, a, a real. Real baritone can hold it out. But it's only written with an eighth note. So I just turned my back to the audience. <laughs> I just want to breeze through some, some of the roles before we get into the German music. Um, uh, in terms of bass roles, certainly Philip was a highlight. Um, uh, Colline um, in the original cast of the Zeffirelli Bohem, which is mm. still here. That uh, every now and then, I, I pull that video out, and I am literally in the third act between Terry and Jose Carreras. I'm literally in tears. Yeah. It's the most gorgeous. Uh, the, we all know about the voice uh, and everything, but the acting, the, the, the connection between the two of them, it's just it's mm -hmm. like perfection. It's mm -hmm. wonderful. I agree. Uh, the Hoffman villains. Uh, Mephistopheles, um, and then going on to baritone roles, Iago, uh, Scarpia. You did Macbeth, but not at the Met elsewhere. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I did a few places. And lots of what we think of as bass baritone roles, um, Escamillo and Figaro. Um, but your first major German role was, was Wotan in Rheingold. Mm -hmm. And I know that... Um, it took you a while to go down that path. Mm -hmm. You like to talk a little bit about that? I know that. <clears throat> okay, I, Wagner. When I first listened to Wagner, I thought, Ugh. you know, without the singers, it's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, wonderful orchestrally and everything. But then you put the singers in there, and it's like, oh my god. And so I, I wasn't really interested in it. And people kept telling me that I should look at Wotan. And I just kept putting it off and putting it off. And um, 
uh, I was doing a, a Marriage of Figaro in Florence, and the accompanist for the production uh, on a lunch break, he was practicing because the next thing he had to do was Valkyra, so he was practicing it. So I sat down next to him on the piano bench, and I thought, I'm going to see what this is all about. Okay. He was doing the monologue. Chord. Chord. Words, 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 words. Chord, words, words. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, I wasn't really into German yet. And I thought, this is all about words. You know, where's the music? But um, so I put it off and put it off. And then uh, more people were saying I should do it. And so I thought, OK, I'll listen to it with the score. But I made the mistake in the house I was living in at the time. I had this nice big fireplace. had a big recliner chair in front of the fireplace. I'd sit down. I'd open the score. Now, Wotan doesn't come in until the second act. But I'd start from the top of act one. <laughs> storm scene. And in five minutes, I'm, you know, in front of the fire and everything. So finally, um, two people in the course of the same summer, I was in Santa Fe, and two people who I really respected their opinions, Terry McEwen, who had been uh, with Decca Records for, I don't know, forever, and then now he was the general manager at San Francisco. And Bliss Hebert, <clears throat> a wonderful American director, one of the few directors who approached his directing through the music. It's really great. And um, both of them, not together, but at different times, said, you really, you really have to get into this. Uh, eh, yeah. And Terry McEwen said, um, start with the op sheet. Start with the end. Listen to that, learn that, and then work your way backwards. And I did. I, I listened to the op sheet, and I was hooked right then. And it also didn't hurt that Terry said they were going to be doing uh, three cycles, and I could do as many of the operas as I wanted to do. So, ka-ching, you know, <laughs> it's all dollar signs. And I hate to put it on that level. But anyway, that, that didn't hurt my decision. And um, so, yeah, when, when I started working on that, and that's when I worked with Hans Hauter on, on the Valkyra. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, <clears throat> The limited experience I had with German up to then, um, I had worked uh, again uh, with uh, uh, Walter Tausi. Um, my first year at the Met, I was 23 years old, and they wanted me to cover King Mark. That's crazy. And um, so I went into the coachings with, with Walter, and I was used to singing Italian, where a nice legato and allusions and everything. And it was uh, one example was Da Alice, right? And I sang Da Alice, Da Alice. Nine, nine is not Da Alice. It's Da Alice, Da Alice. And all these glottal stops everywhere. Ooh, 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 ooh. You know, I thought, you know. I came out of the session, I, my throat, I was tied up in knots. And I went to the administration. I said, you got to take me off of this. I really, it's, it's not for me. Uh, I mean, the range is okay. That's not the problem. But it's the style of singing. And I'm afraid I'll hurt myself. And so they, <laughs> you were talking about Paul. Um, they said, okay, they took me off of it. And for the next couple of weeks, there were auditions almost like every day, people coming in to audition, and they couldn't find anybody. So they went to Paul, who was doing a lot of his uh, buffo roles and everything, and they said, would you do it? And he said, okay, but I want to get rid of this role and that role and that, and I want more money. <laughs> and I said, okay, fine. So they gave it to him. I don't 
think he ever, I don't know, maybe he did do a performance, I don't know, but I heard him singing it. It was so legato. I thought, damn, I could have done that. You know. But anyway, so then when I was preparing Valkyra, um, <clears throat> I worked really, really hard on all the words and all the glottal stops and everything, you know. And then the first time I worked with Hotter in his house in Munich, uh, I started the first scene. And in the middle of the second page, he goes, nine, nine, legato, Italian, Italianate. I thought, oh, my God, you know, you can't win. But, um, but I was so fortunate to study it with him because he did it so legato. I mean, a lot of, a lot of we don't have any German singers here, do we? Uh, a lot of German singers develop what we affectionately refer to as the Bayreuth bark, and um, where it's, you know, not really legato. And, um, and Ricky Bonning, when uh, we were doing uh, Semiramide in uh, San Francisco, and I told him I was working on Valkyra, and he said that, uh, well, if you start doing that, you'll never do this stuff again. And I said, no, I mean, if I find that doing that won't allow me to do the other things, then I'll give it up, because I love the Italian and French repertoire. That's what I knew. And um, then when I told him I was studying with Hans Hotter, and he said, oh, well, okay, He's, he's the softest of all the votons. And by soft, he meant the most legato, you know, soft edges, not soft in volume. And, um, and I was so lucky. I mean, I've been so lucky in so many ways in, in this business. And I, I was lucky to meet Rosa Poncel and to work with her. Lucky that I lived in Baltimore and got started with the Baltimore Opera. Lucky that uh, I, I didn't do the, the regular metal auditions. They just were looking for a bass. And... Um, just went in for a private audition. And so much of this business, no matter how good you are, it's just being in the right place at the right time. And, um, and then the Don Giovanni when that happened, and then being pushed into the, into the uh, ring, into the German, and being able to work with Hotter. I mean, it's just, look back on it, and it's, you know. But you also did something, I was going to mention this later. You told an interviewer that Wagner roles helped me with other roles. If you do too many Figaro's, Don Giovanni's, after a while I found I was singing without any support, just speaking the words on pitch. Singing Wagner makes you really support correctly and project the way we were all taught. It's mm -hmm. an no, interesting... No, uh, when I started doing uh, the rings, and all of a sudden that's all people wanted uh, in, in Germany and in France and around the States, and wherever, they, they just wanted rings. And... I knew that uh, if you pigeonhole yourself, uh, your voice kind of stagnates. You, know? uh, you have to always be pushing the envelope. You have to be doing up here, down there, different styles. And um, I always found that the, the Wagner brought weight and color to the Mozart, and Mozart brought agility to, to the Wagner. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I got to the point after a while, I'd say, okay, well, I'll do Ring if... We can do an Italian opera or something. And for a long time, in, in Munich and Vienna, they put the ring cycle back to back with Don Giovanni. <laughs> and so I'd do a ring cycle, and two nights after Siegfried, I'd be doing Don Giovanni. And I look back on that, and I think, God, that was so stupid. But, you know, when you're young, you know, what do you know? But, um, yeah, yeah it, it's, I, I tell my students this. You know, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself and just do one one narrow fox all the time, mm -hmm. you know, push the envelopes. And uh, 
I pushed the envelope with Iago and uh, with Dutchman. Mm -hmm. And uh, but if you if you just play it safe all the time, it gets boring for you and for the people, you know, watching it. And I don't think you get to the 50-year mark at that point. Probably you know, not. <laughs> you know, you, you give it up. <clears throat> uh, we're going to watch uh, a few moments of De Valkyrie. Uh, this is the Liebvoll um, from the telecast from 1989 uh, with Hildegard Behrens, um, who's astonishing in this without opening her mouth. Yeah. Um, Before we start, i got to say, Hildegard Behrens, she, she was my favorite Brunhilde of all the ones I did it with. And first, she was the sweetest person, but her acting, I, I don't know what part of this clip you have, but a lot of us, when we turn her back to the audience, <clears throat> it's a moment where kind of we let down a little bit, you know, <clears throat> clear our throat or whatever. She would never do that. When she was in character, she was in character totally. And to be able to play off of that, um, it, it made it so, so much easier. And um, she never, I mean, when I was singing to her, she was looking right in my face. And there's uh, one, I don't know if it's in this clip or not. Oh, okay, I won't spoil it. But um, when they were rehearsing the camera angle, somebody noticed this particular thing, and they made a point of putting a camera in this certain spot. Yeah, you see a oh. moment of that yeah. on here. So this is from 1989, conducted by James Levine. Oh, sie ist 
<clears throat> if that had continued, the, the next section, very, very piano section, where he's talking about her eyes and everything, and, and the way she looked up at me. If, if I was having any kind of a vocal problem that night, that got me through it. It was just amazing. Her eyes are totally liquid. Yeah, when she's really. Up at you. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was it was just amazing. I'm glad somebody discovered that. You know, it was yeah. a good good angle. Yeah. But also too, and I, and I gotta say this, Jimmy Levine. Um, I feel so so fortunate that our times overlapped. Mm -hmm. um, just nobody like him, and. Um, <clears throat> He, when, when a singer was on stage, he, he had them right there. There are very few conductors that really understand the singer, understand the voice. And um, he was always right ready to make any kind of a change at any moment. And there was one spot in there where all of a sudden I got very, very soft, very piano. And the orchestra had begun a little bit louder. And if, if you notice, all of a sudden he came right down with it. And... Um, we had a lot of fun things back and forth, like uh, for emphasis sometimes, uh, like Der Gott, right, uh, of, of the God. And I would hesitate on the G. Der Gott, you know. And he was right there, <laughs> right there every time. And there were other words, you know, uh, in the monologue and places where I just sort of would take the time before I said it. And you can't teach that, you know. That, that has to be inside. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so many conductors are from here down, but Jimmy is here and, and here. Mm -hmm. but. You had a couple of more Wagner mountains to climb, uh, <laughs> the Dutchman, um, but also, well, this is a, this is a Valkyrie curtain call, um, but also then finally on Zox, mm -hmm. um, which you resisted for oh, did I the resist longest that? time. Oh, boy. The score's about that thick. Um, nothing but words. That nothing's repeated, ever. It, it's, a, it's a poem from beginning to end. It's six hours of a poem. And this man, uh, with such a command of his language, you know, uh, when you look in a dictionary, uh, look up the definition of a word, and they'll give maybe three or four different definitions. He'd find, in order to make the poetry work, he would use a word where maybe it was the, the fourth definition down of something. But that's, that's how intricate it was. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I resisted it for a long time, like I said. Um, I actually put it off. I was supposed to do it four years before I did do it. And um, <clears throat> it got to the point uh, we were in Japan. And I sang it for Jimmy, and I was okay with the book, but memory. <laughs> and I said, now, Jim. I can really, really push this and do it, you know, when it's scheduled, or I can wait till the next run and really have it inside. And uh, he said, no, I, I want to do it. I want to do it. So I tried, but then I said, no, it's, uh, I, I got to wait. I got to wait. And I was so scared because uh, Joe Volpe was in charge then, and he had just fired Kathy Battle. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, I'm never going to work at the Met again, you know. But um, so many times during the learning process of that, my score would end up on the other side of the room. Uh, there, there's a thing that Walter, the tenor, says in the, uh, in the third act when we're 
making this song. And uh, after about the 16th verse of this thing, and uh, <clears throat> finally Walter says, Genug der Wort, en enough of words. And I said, every night I'm like, yeah, right, I agree. You know, but, um, but it really became my favorite role. Um, everybody thinks of Wotan, of course, but Meistersinger really became my favorite role because not, not just the music. I mean, the music is, is unbelievable. Um, there's nothing in Meistersinger that, that I would cut. Uh, maybe some of David's aria in the first scene. <laughs> um, but the character of, of Sox, uh, I always say he's, he's the kind of character we all would like to be. And um, <clears throat> this has been kind of ridiculous. Been this trip down memory lane has been kind of emotional here. But another reason that uh, it's my favorite opera, um, the first time I did it was in San Francisco. And I asked Terry McEwen, <clears throat> or no, no, I'm sorry, it was Lafayette Mansouri at that time. Um, I asked if I could come two weeks earlier than everybody else. Because when I learn a role, no matter how well I learn it, the first few days, the first week or so of staging, until my feet know where they're going, my words just go out the window. And I didn't want to look like a fool in front of my colleagues, you know. And I wanted to get staging in ahead of time so that when everybody else got there, I was ready to go. You know. So he said, yeah, sure, okay. And he got the director, um, a very old school German director, thank God. It wasn't one of these crazy productions. It was very traditional production. <laughs> and um, he came in and he worked with me for two weeks. And <clears throat> it, was, it was just so incredible. But had... Uh, we flown out with my wife and my two kids. They were like that big at the time. Usually when, when you have a contract, you fly into the city the night before, and then you start rehearsing the next day. Had I flown the day before the contract began, <coughs> we would have been on uh, Flight 93 that went down oh. in Pennsylvania. Sorry. But, you know, not, not just me, my, my whole, whole family. family. Yeah. So that's another reason why Meistersinger is right there. My kids, uh, they were five at the time, and um, later on in that scene is the big hammering of the shoes and with Beckmesser, and, you know, he's making the shoes. We came off stage at the end of the scene, and my kids were standing there in the wings, and my daughter said, gee, Daddy, can you really make shoes? <laughs> and I said, no, dear, it's the first of many disappointments. Yeah. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you so much for... Thank you. That was the Met Guild's Paul Gruber interviewing James Morris. If you enjoy our podcast programming, please leave us a review in iTunes or by sending us an email at info at We always love hearing thoughts and feedback from our listeners. We will be back with you next week, March 8, with a new episode on Verdi's La Traviata. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera. Thank you for listening.